Chapter One of the Recording Angel by Edwin Arnold Brenholtz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Andrew Bemis. On the oppressor's side was power, but I knew that every wrong, however old, however strong, but waited God's avenging hour. Whittier. Nettie, said the old man suddenly. Nettie, don't you expect Charlie to come see you tonight? Certainly I do, said the young girl, who had been sitting quietly, sewing steadily at a piece of work which she now threw impatiently aside, as if her father's words had broken through the restraint she was putting on herself. Certainly I do, she repeated, and he is an hour late now. Last night, as you know, being the first Monday in the month, was a regular meeting night for the Union, and so he cannot be there. It may be another of those committee meetings, though but he said nothing to me about one. Anyway, it's no use for me to sew any more buttonholes tonight, for somehow I'm more nervous than I have ever before been in my life. There was no accident at the works today, was there, father? She cried, turning suddenly towards the old man, and then hastily added, Oh, I forgot that you were not there. No, child, no, said he. Not that I have heard of, at least, not to him or I would have told you. But you know that at any place where over three thousand men are working, there will scarcely a day pass, but one or more will be hurt or even killed in the hurry and the rush and the whirling of so much machinery. Yes, yes, said the girl as she walked quickly to the window and impatiently pulled up the shade. I know all that. Oh, what we women have to suffer when we love anyone. And I have two to worry about, she added under her breath. But as she heard her own words, a look of pleasure came over her face, which made her father smile as he noticed it, and he said, Well, dear, you know that we get nothing in this world without paying the price, and I do not think that either you or I will ever regret the cost of love. Only those regret that who expect to get it for nothing. As his quiet voice filled the room, the restlessness of the girl's movements became less, and finally, she dropped into the chair that she had left, took up the work again, and was silent for a while. No sound was heard in the house but the steady rocking of the chair. The woman who came daily to do the hard rough work and to help with the cooking had gone home for the night. The stillness was so intense that the creaking of Nettie's chair seemed to mark off the seconds as they passed. Outside, the night was still and cold, for the month was November. The leafless trees in the garden seemed to be keeping watch, and in the distance the sky was reddened at regular intervals, and the roar of the furnaces could be distinctly heard. At last, the silence within the room became unbearable to the girl, and she threw the work aside, saying, Yes, you are right, father, and I want to tell you about a talk I had with Jack Cassidy. You remember it is three months since he was hurt at the works. Well, I have been going to see the family ever since, and as soon as it was known that he would recover, although he will always be a cripple, I commenced trying to show him the peace of mind he might enjoy if only he believed in Christianity. Lately, I have not talked to him on the subject, for right after he was hurt, he said that he would like to believe it if he could, and I told him that it was a free salvation, and he broke out so violently that the doctor says no one must mention the subject to him. 
The doctor insists that the excitement will take away the man's last chance for recovery. And so I'll content myself with singing to him, for that, he says, does him good, as it puts him to sleep. Isn't that a funny compliment, Daddy? And she laughed merrily. But at the memory of the scene she was recounting, she became serious once more and said, Poor fellow, he does not mean it in that way at all. I cannot forget what he said as he threw his arms violently about his head and cried, Oh yes, it's free, free, isn't it? A nice free, that is, which can only be got by paying the price of believing what I can't believe at all. That is all he said, for he hit his arm on the headboard of the bed and tore open the bandage of that terrible wound, and then he fainted. I've never had much use for your district visiting, said her father bluntly. Well, she continued meditatively, I've concluded to let someone who could present the consolation of religion in such a matter that it would console do my work as district visitor hereafter. Every man to his own work, say I, and that is evidently not mine. But there's Charlie's step at the gate. Now, Father, take up that paper. I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of knowing that we were anxious about him. And so the picture of quiet contentment that met the eyes of Charles Arndt as, after his knock, he entered the cheerful sitting-room of Angus MacDonald's house, would have quieted a more excitable man than even Arndt, had he been in his usual condition. His knock had been answered by Angus in a loud voice, who cried, What are you knocking for, man? Come in, come in. Then, turning to his daughter, Angus said, There's something wrong, sure. Go out to meet him. But she shook her head and sat still. Arndt was a tall, muscular fellow of perhaps twenty-five, and he usually had good control of his muscles and rarely showed emotion. But tonight, after he had shaken hands with Angus and stooped over the chair where Nettie was still busily employed with the sewing which he had hastily picked up again, there was considerable excitement visible in his eyes, and he placed his hands on her arms, just below the shoulders, and with no apparent effort raised her to her feet. Then, as he looked down into her face, for her eyes refused to meet his, he said, Look at me, Nettie. I want a kiss, right here and now. Never mind your father. At these words, the blue eyes flashed open, and she quickly retreated one step away from him and cried angrily, What do you mean, sir? But he never moved towards her, and as her questioning eyes gazed steadily into his, she saw something in the whole appearance of the man which caused her to forget even that he was her lover, and a wave of pity for him swept over her, and she took back that step and threw her arms around his neck and cried, You poor boy, not one kiss but a dozen if you want them. Then he slowly placed his hands, one on each side of her face, and stooping, kissed her on her lips and then released her. Angus MacDonald made no motion, nor even parted his tightly closed lips during this scene. His pipe had been laid on the table when Arndt entered the room, and there was no fire in it now. As Nettie, still gazing at Arndt as if to find out all about him, sank back into her chair, her father broke the silence with, Well, Charlie, my man, what's the matter? Oh, nothing, and everything, said Arndt. Nothing with the universe at large, and everything with me and mine. I have a long story to tell you, so I'll sit down. And Nettie, dear, turning to the girl, who was still looking steadily at him, I had to have that kiss before I told my story. 
I didn't feel equal to telling all without it, and then, perhaps, you may not like what I have done. Neither the father nor the daughter replied by word or motion, and the young man proceeded half defiantly. Well, Mr. MacDonald, it is only that what you have warned me about has happened at last. There's no use kicking against fate anyhow. It works its will with all of us. No, sir. I'm not discharged from the works. I've resigned my position in the Consolidated Iron and Steel Company. Angus, during these words, had pulled his pipe towards him and slowly filled it from the big box of tobacco which stood on the table. Nettie now reached over towards her father and handed him a match, which he lighted by pressing the head against the hot glass of the lamp chimney. As he watched the match flame up with a little explosion and, as usual, leave a black mark upon the brilliantly polished surface of the chimney, she smiled to think how much pleasure her father got out of this little habit of his. That the chimney would be hard to clean had never occurred to him, and she had never mentioned it. Charles Arndt sat, quietly taking in every motion of father and daughter, thinking how many times he had enjoyed the same picture. Not many of the world's pictures are transferred to canvas, and Arndt was one of those who could enjoy the ones which the painters miss while they are fooling with the nude. As Angus applied the lighted match to his pipe and pulled the first whiff of smoke through the stem, Arndt said, Do you care to hear the story? And the girl cried sharply, Why not, Charlie? Angus slowly blew the smoke from his mouth and said calmly, Why not, man? Who should hear it if not we? Arndt replied, Oh, well, there are people in this world who would have found what I told you sufficient. One does not get work easily these days. Plenty of men and few jobs, and a blacklisted man has a hard time of it. Oh, yes, I resigned on the spot, but that won't prevent my name from getting on the list. Worst offense on the catalog at that, telling the truth to my employer. Oh, of course, you yourself are a boss, Angus, and you know they don't call it by that name in the report. Well, it's quite a story, so I'd better begin, for it goes a long way back. You are well acquainted with Robert Endy, Jr., Esquire, and know him most as well as I do. As you are aware, he and I were boys together, same schools, same church, and Sunday school. I quit school a little before he did to learn my trade, and had served two years of my apprenticeship when he appeared in the shops. Now, up to the time when we went off to school, we were chums, and I spent lots of time at the mansion, but the two years of separation changed all that, and he has seemed to dislike me ever since his return. His health had failed, they said, as a reason for his not continuing and finishing his course. Anyhow, he had only two years schooling that I did not get, and as I had kept up my studies at the night school, I'm sure that I knew more about my business than he did, and as much about everything else, for he was not a particularly bright boy. So I had two years' advantage of him in the shops. Well, he is the son of the Honorable Robert Endy with a lot of the alphabet after his name, and untold millions in his pocket. He is a good man, and a kind friend to me, interrupted Angus. Oh, yes, said Arndt. I'm not saying one word against old Mr. Endy. He is all that you say, and I wish that all rich men were like him. Only the way his position in the work operated to help his son was a hardship to every apprentice in the works. It makes me laugh every time I hear that so-and-so's son has been learning his trade just like a poor man's boy. Why, it's an infamous lie, 
he cried hotly. Mildly, mildly, Charlie, said Nettie. Now, Angus, he said, as the old man raised his hand as if about to speak. I know you are a just man, and you cannot deny that every rich man's son who has gone through our shops has learned the trade in the time that all of us ought to have learned it, if we hadn't been held back to wipe greasy machinery and the like. Oh, I'm not blaming you, as Angus started to say something. I know you tried to make things as equal as you could, and that your orders were to rush them through. I don't say they didn't learn their trade, either. I only say that we had to do their part of the dirty work. There may be shops in the United States where this is not the rule, and I think that it was not quite so bad in the past century, but you cannot deny that even if those men's sons had to learn the trade just the same as the rest of us, the lower positions were the ones ahead of us, and the prospect and reality of the higher ones always ahead of them. I do not call this justice. I would have been more fitted for Indy's position today than he is if I had not been held back to give him his chance. It is egotism, isn't it? But it's also the truth. Anyway, I must just tell my story. In spite of my two years' start of him, and the fact that I studied almost every night at the technical side of my trade, Bob Indy was through that part of the business a year ahead of me, and I, this morning, was an underboss in the works, and he was made assistant superintendent of this division of the plant yesterday, and he took charge this morning. Of course, all this is no news to you, Angus, but, turning to Nettie, I suppose that the latter portion of it is to you. Some of it I knew, she said quietly. Well, Angus, said Arndt, how do you like the idea of the Honorable Robert for a boss? But MacDonald said only, What has that got to do with your story, Charlie? Oh, said the other quickly, perhaps more than you think. Angus half rose from his chair, but settled back again and said, You haven't told me a thing that I didn't know. All that you've said about favoritism is true, but I have often tried to point out to you that some men must rule that some must fill these higher positions and some do the rougher tasks, and that we simply cannot alter the working of the laws of evolution. For, as Longfellow expresses it, some must follow and some command, though all are made of clay. It is perfectly natural for the rich man to educate his sons for these commanding positions, and in the only way possible, that is, by having them go right through the works like any other young man. And, of course, they are anxious to have their children get through the drudgery and dirty part of it as soon as possible. The trouble does not lie there. These rich corporations should pay men who have a capacity for nothing higher to do that work and thus relieve some of the poverty of the world. And as for your studying at night, why, I think you should see that you got your position of underboss so soon simply because you were fitted for it. He paused as Arndt made an impatient gesture with his hand and broke out. Oh, yes, but you forgot to mention that in spite of my fitness, it was necessary for my friend Angus MacDonald to say a word or so for me. We've gone over that ground often, but of the injustice of the whole system to the rest of us, you always refuse to speak. Well, said Angus, you call it injustice, and it looks like injustice and cruelty but it is simply the way in which the law of evolution works the world over. You cannot deny that the big fish eats the little fish simply because he is big and able to do it and is hungry. 
The feelings of the little fish do not seem to be considered any more than the feelings of the still smaller fish whom he ate for his breakfast have been taken into account. It's the old rule. Unto him that hath shall be given. And although it seems to be cruel, it all appears to work out all right, if only we don't think about individual feelings. Here aren't interrupted. But it's individual cases and individual feelings that I'm talking about. I know the ins and outs of the application of this theory of yours to the universe in general, and... He was going on, but Nettie stopped him with a gesture and a look, and said, Charlie, why did you lose your place? Then he said bitterly, Oh, I see. You have got rid of my resignation as easily as Endy will when he places my name on the blacklist. She looked appealingly at him, and he smiled to her as he lightly said, It is all very simple. The spirit of 76 rose in its might today in the person of Charles Arndt, underboss in the locomotive department of the C.I.N.S. Company. And when the right Honorable Indy Esquire addressed him as Number 703, he quietly remarked that his name was Charles Arndt, and that he hadn't forgotten either it or the fact that the person who addressed him as if he were a convict was called Robert Endy. Good! cried Nettie, as she drew her chair close to him and laid her hand on his, which had the arm of the chair in a tight and hard grip. Good, I say. I'm proud of you. What did Andy say? And Angus added, What did the superintendent say? But he did not echo that. Good. As Arndt felt that touch, he opened his tight grip on the arm of the chair and stroked the soft, warm hand, which now rested where his had, and he replied, Oh, he just drew himself up in that pompous style of his and said, Number 703, please report to my office in an hour. And he turned away. But I stepped in front of him and said, Mr. Superintendent, it will be unnecessary, since I hand you my resignation on the spot, to take effect at your pleasure. And he replied, At once, then, if you please. Number 704 temporarily filled the position. And in half an hour, number 907 had been promoted to the place permanently. Too bad, too bad, said Angus with a sigh. I've been afraid of it ever since that order came out. There's not a man who is a man who likes to be called by a number instead of a name. Why, I've had a fancy that even the locomotives don't like it, though we do make so many of them that it seems useless to even try to get names for them all and there are plenty of numbers to go around. But in the men's case, the real trouble is that it is actually easier to remember a man's name than his number, and so the first thing that comes after that order is the logical consequence that the men have to wear their numbers, and then you've got them tagged like slaves or convicts. And that seems to be everlastingly preventing the only good thing ever I could see in the law of evolution, namely, that its ultimate result appeared to be to turn out a higher average of manhood all around. But if the thing is going to work this way, and turn out only a few men, and the rest of us numbers, and therefore not individuals, and therefore not men, why, I am sure I do not like the prospect, although my likes and dislikes will not change anything either. I've not liked that order, and I've not been very strict about its being enforced. Here he looked quizzically at Arndt, who laughed as he said, <laughs> Not very, and the men all appreciate your making a dead letter of it for those under you, 
and we wish that you would throw our influence in our favor by joining the Union. We need such men as you very much. But the old man said, Can't do it, Charlie. I can't do it. I am afraid that the outcome of the combination of the working men will be a civil war, and that's Mr. Indy's opinion also. And, of course, you were wrong to get into trouble about the numbering. One must just grin and bear some things. What are you and Nettie going to do about it? You can't get married on nothing today, and no more for tomorrow, and I suppose you're both too proud to take money from me. Arndt said nothing, waiting for Nettie to speak. But he had only an instant to wait, for at her father's question, her hand closed tightly over the fingers that had been softly stroking hers, and she said emphatically, We are going to be true to each other and are going to wait for better times. And then questioningly to Arndt, Are we not, dear? And he raised her hand to his lips and said, Sweetheart, we are. End of chapter one.